So as Kate kind of spoiled a little bit before, we are starting the book of Mark this term, uh, which I am super duper keen for. We're going to be looking into the life of Jesus. And especially in my little talk today, I want to kind of emphasize to you guys that you should take Jesus seriously. We're going to see that Mark takes Jesus seriously. We're going to see John the Baptist takes Jesus seriously. We're going to say, see that God takes Jesus seriously. And we're going to see that Jesus takes you seriously. And it's going to be really, really cool. Um, but you are definitely going to need a Bible with you. That is going to be 100% relevant to what we're doing. So make sure you have your Bible ready and with you and open. And I would like you to open with me to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to start at verse one. We're going to read this together. I have with me my Bible and we're going to read this. We're just going to read the first 11 verses of Mark. So for those of you that are wondering, it is the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, it's written by a guy named, well, we believe it's written by a guy named John Mark, who was an associate of Peter and Paul, remember Paul, that really amazing guy who was originally Saul? This guy is a friend of them. And what he writes in this book, he has collected and collated from eyewitness accounts, which means he's taken what people have said and seen and heard, and he's written it down and collected these stories. And I think it's really, really awesome. We're going to start chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through to verse 11. Let's do this together. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Isn't that awesome? Mark, in this book, let's look right back to the beginning of this. Mark clearly tells us what he is about. In the very first sentence, it's, it's pretty clear. He tells us what this book is about. This is verse one. This book is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. Now, this first verse is actually pretty much the only time in the book of Mark where we see Mark telling us his opinion. For pretty much the rest of the book, he lets 
the stories speak for themselves and he tells us how people reacted to things that Jesus did, which is really, really cool. Um, I'm scared. Sam is scaring me. Thank you, my ears. Yay. Okay. Okay. I'm really, really confused, Josh, but I hope someone has been able to help you out. Um, so it's really, really cool. He tells us what it is that he believes. And in the rest of the book, we'll see the events of Jesus' life kind of play out and the way that people react. But at the very start, he tells us what it is that he believes. And there's a couple of words in there, which I want to focus on for the next couple of minutes. He says, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus. We've all heard that name before. We know who Jesus is, but then he gives us two descriptors for Jesus. He says, Jesus, the Messiah and the son of God. Now, Messiah essentially means promised savior. And in order to understand both of these words and that word in particular, I want to go back to the very beginning. And when I say beginning, I don't mean beginning of Mark because that's already where we are. I want to say the very beginning, at the very beginning of the Bible. You see, at the beginning of the Bible, we get this kind of strange picture, this strange story where God creates man and woman in the Garden of Eden. You guys can read about it. It's in the book of Genesis. It's right at chapter one. And there's only one rule that this man and this woman are given, and that is that they can't eat from one of the trees in the garden. All that they had to do to maintain a state of bliss, to maintain a state of awesome serenity, life with God was not eat from one tree. However, there's one other thing in the garden that we're told is there and that is a crafty snake and this snake convinces eve and then in turn adam that eating from this tree is a good idea and in doing that adam and eve rebel against god and they're forced to leave this garden it's at that moment that crucial pivotal moment that death enters the world that god has created that we see sin manifested for the first time. And it's quite astonishing when we read about that, that God doesn't simply choose to wipe humanity from the face of the earth because they broke the rules. But thankfully for you and for me, the rest of the Bible exists and we know that God chose not to destroy them. Instead, we see that because sin is so woven into human nature, God doesn't just destroy humans, but in order to destroy sin, he lays out a plan. He lays out a plan. And this is where we get our first glimpse of the Messiah, of a promised Savior. As Adam and Eve are being cast out of this perfect garden, I want you guys to, if you have a Bible there, turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and just have a look at it. I'm not going to read it out, but just have a look at that verse. This is as... Adam and Eve are being cast out. God says to the snake that tricked them, he says, from the children of Eve will come one who will crush your head. This being which represents sin, which represents evil, which represents craftiness and bad things will one day be destroyed, will have its head crushed. 
But an important thing that God also says is that in doing that, in the, the course of that battle, the snake will get one good blow in. The snake will strike the heel of the one who will destroy him. A savior will come. And so we see God's plan. We see God's plan. However, in the meantime, as I'm sure you guys are aware, the wages of sin still has to be paid. For Adam and Eve and the people that come directly after them, life must be given for life. And that's where we get the sacrificial system that you've probably heard us talk about previously. It's the idea that Adam and Eve sinned, they continue to sin, and that sin had to be paid for. Jesus hadn't come yet. And so life had to be given for life. Clearly, we can see that foreshadows something to come. We can see that. Blessedly, we can see that. But for them, there was a very real part of their existence. That's important to remember. I'm going to bring that up a little bit later. Now, this plan of God continues on all the way through the Old Testament. The next kind of development that we get after Adam and Eve comes from a man named Abraham. Do you guys know who Abraham is? Raise your hand if you've heard of Abraham before. I'm going to switch my screen so I can see some of you. Yep, we've got people knowing who Abraham is. That's good. He didn't start out life as Abraham. He started out as Abram. And he was this man of faith that God singles out. And God promises that through him will come God's chosen people and those people will be a blessing to the world. If you flick forwards in Genesis, if you've got your Bible open, you can look at chapter 17, which is a little bit further along. So much happens in those first couple of chapters. It's astonishing. But in chapter 17, in verses 4 through 6, look there with me now. It says, as for me, this is my covenant with you. This is God speaking to Abraham. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and God of your descendants after you. Now, an important line to focus on there is some will even be kings. And as we follow the line of Abraham, we land on one of his great grandsons whose name is Judah. And you might be thinking, why does that sound familiar? Why does the name Judah sound familiar? Well, it's because Judah was promised that from him will come a line of kings. He's one of, Judah is essentially one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's where the term Judaism comes from, from the tribe of Judah, from whom is promised the line of kings. And one of these kings is named David. Can I get a show of hands? Who's heard of David before? Yep, I'm seeing some hands. That is awesome. Some people are paying attention. Christian, you haven't fallen asleep on me, have you? (laughs) that's good i can actually see all of your faces this is great but none of you can tell who i'm looking at so i can just be peeking in at people and checking whether they're paying attention josh oh he heard me yes he just popped his head up i'm so happy 
One of these kings' name is David. Now, David is this great man of God who on the surface looks like what people can imagine a promised savior will be. You have to remember the people at the time, they know the promise from Adam. They know the promise from Eve. And they're like, yeah, we're waiting for this promised king from the line of Judah. And then David pops up and everyone's like, wow, this guy is pretty awesome, right? Could this be the promised Messiah? Although, as I'm sure a lot of you are aware, the tendrils of sin run deep, especially within David. And David is a deeply, deeply flawed individual. But out of David's shortcomings, God reveals to us a little bit more of his plan. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he makes a promise to David that upon his line, God will establish his throne and kingdom forever. He says that one will come from you that will be a king like no other, a king that no one has seen before. It's pretty crazy. We get this picture of a king to come. We get this picture of glory, of enemies defeated, of people raised up in glory underneath this king. This promise to Adam and Eve fulfilled in a serpent-crushing Messiah who will come from the line of David. God has a plan. And yet after David in the Old Testament, for those of you that are familiar, and I would would encourage you guys to read the Old Testament, it's awesome. We see king after king lead God's people down a dark path until eventually as a people, they're nigh on destroyed, captured, taken away. And even though they come back at different points, they never really regain the same kind of glory that they had under King David. And this is the kind of world, the kind of belief system that we jump into with Mark. You see, God's people, the ones that had all of these promises, that knew about a serpent crusher to come, that knew about a Messiah, a promised Savior, that was their history. You see, God's people were still around at the start of Jesus' life. They were the Jews, the people of Judah. And in this book of Mark, they're living under the oppression of the Romans. Has everybody heard of the Romans, studied them? Massive group of people, did really well, built roads. All roads lead to Rome. And in the eyes of the Jews, in them looking at themselves, they see the glory days back when David and his son Solomon were king. And they're like, we need to regain that. And what did we have back then? We had a warrior king. The story we stepped through was their history. And what Mark is setting out to do in his book, in the book of Mark, and we're going to be exploring this throughout the rest of the term, is that he is proving to these people that Jesus is the Messiah. Yet he's proving to them that he's not the Messiah they expected. Because they wanted a warrior king. They were looking for someone who would crush the head of a serpent under their feet. But instead, as we know, the snake had to strike the heel of the promised king. 
And we know that Jesus defeats the serpent, not with a mighty army, not with his strong sword arm, not with his dashing jawline, good looks, Thor-like strength, but rather he defeats him by dying. And for the people of the time, that was a complete shift from what they expected to what actually happened. And Mark sets out to prove to these people that Jesus was that Messiah and that actually what he did was so much greater than just a warrior king, that he was willing to lay down his life for them. So how does Mark do this in this first chapter? Well, he starts off by quoting some of the Old Testament prophets. If you look at verses two and three, he quotes from Isaiah. Has anybody heard of Isaiah before? I'm going to switch my screen so I can see some more people. Anybody heard of the prophet Isaiah? It's a bit of a confusing book and it comes at a very difficult time in Israel's history. But essentially, Isaiah writes down a bunch of prophecies about stuff that is to come. And it's really, really fascinating that a lot of these prophecies line up with Jesus. And that's what Mark is pointing out at the very start of this chapter. And what he does after he holds up these Old Testament promises is he points to a guy named John the Baptist. Who's heard of John the Baptist before? Yep, I'm getting you guys to move your hands a lot because in moving your hands, it keeps you awake. And I know that you've probably all got heaters on and it's probably really nice and warm and you have a tendency to fall asleep. And I don't want that because this is so important. He starts off with John the Baptist. Let's look at verse four. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Interesting. Do you guys remember how sins were forgiven in the Old Testament. Someone throw it in the comments. Bonus points, bonus heaven points for the first person to throw it in there. How, if I've done something wrong in the Old Testament, do I then make that right, at least for a little bit? If I'm an Old Testament, one of God's people. There we go, Lockie throwing it in there. Good job. Sacrifice, right? This is the world in which Jesus first appears. This is how Sin is paid for. When you do something wrong, it has to be punished. Life for life, death for death. And we see here John preaching something different. John preaching something different. And what is it that John preached? John preached forgiveness through repentance. So radically different. So completely different. And what do we see as a response to this different message? We see people feeling it. We see it resonating with their knowledge of scripture. And it rings true that God would want my heart to change. God would want my heart to change. Previously, there had to be death. John preached life. But he didn't stop there. He preaches of life to come. Because he speaks of a promised saviour. This word, Messiah, a promised saviour, a man to come. And then Mark doesn't keep us waiting 
almost immediately after he says, this is John's message. There will be a man to come who is greater than I, who will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. He's going to come. And then in the next couple of verses, Mark jumps ahead to when Jesus turns up. So I want to ask you guys the question, why should we take Jesus seriously? And I want to straight away give you an answer. And that is John the Baptist took Jesus seriously. John the Baptist, this herald who was foretold in the Old Testament, that thousands of people came to see and be baptized by this guy took Jesus seriously. When he saw him, he took him seriously. Look with me at verse nine. This is verse nine, Mark chapter one. If you've closed your Bible like me, so you can gesture around with your hand. Hopefully you put a bookmark in Mark chapter one, verse nine. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Continuing on, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Mark wrote this from eyewitness accounts. The people are wanting and waiting for a Messiah. They want a savior. And here we have clear as day Literally clear as day, the sky opens up and a voice from heaven proclaims it. Here is the son of God. So another reason why we should take Jesus seriously is A, we have eyewitness accounts and those eyewitness accounts tell us that God took Jesus seriously. For those of you that come along to church, if it's good enough for the good Lord, it's good enough for Jeff Taylor. And if it's good enough for the good Lord, it's good enough for Sam Foster as well. Um, why should we take Jesus seriously? Because God does. However, the people still don't quite get it. And that's going to be a recurring theme through the book of Mark, unfortunately. We're going to see throughout this book, this whole book, and throughout the book of Mark, people not quite understanding who it is that Jesus is. His own disciples won't actually understand the message that John lays out clearly right here. He tells them sins will be forgiven through repentance and that will be enabled by the only way that can happen is through Jesus, is through the Messiah. Do you guys remember that sacrificial system? Kind of one of the main reasons that that's there is it is a sign and a symbol. The Jews, the people of the time, they got so caught up in all their traditions. They got so caught up in the idea of the sacrificial system of fulfilling the laws at the time that they didn't actually look to what it represented. And so when they thought about their Messiah, when they thought about the one who would save them, they didn't realize that the law of exchange had to still take place. They didn't think ahead to that idea. The Messiah will crush the head of the serpent, but in that battle, though the serpent will die, it will strike the heel of the Messiah. The main reason that Mark is going to give us in this book, we're going to get to it later, I'm going to spoil it now, for why you should take Jesus seriously 
is that Jesus took you seriously. You see, this Messiah, this promised king for these people at this time, wasn't a warrior king. Thankfully, if he was a warrior king, what good would that be to us now? You can read about hundreds of them. They did stuff in their time, but they didn't do anything that would last. He wasn't a mighty king to defeat the Romans. He wasn't David 2.0, but he was better. He defeated sin with the ultimate sacrifice. He crushed the serpent, and in doing so, he took a bite to his heel. In his baptism with John, in the verses we just read, the sky opens up, light pours forth, and a voice from heaven cries out. And we know from Mark chapter 15 that as he dies, the sky closes, there is darkness. And instead of God crying out, you are my son with whom I am well pleased, Jesus takes on the weight of our sin, of your sin, and cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he went through that for you. Yet we know that he actually conquered death, didn't he? Thankfully, he didn't stay dead. He rose and he is no longer dead. And that is the main reason that you should take Jesus seriously. We're going to spend the rest of the next few weeks exploring Jesus' life. But throughout all of it, I want you to hold true to that. I, Sam, you, Kate, Mickey, Ben, Brooke, Noah, Lynette, Lockie, Jasmine, Jade, Mia, Nathaniel, Christian, all of you should be taking Jesus seriously. Why? Because Jesus took you seriously to the point that he was willing to die for you. I want to ask you guys, do you take Jesus seriously? Do you take Jesus seriously? Because what taking Jesus seriously meant for John the Baptist was that he would be put in prison and eventually be beheaded. What taking Jesus seriously and taking you seriously meant for Jesus was that he would die on a cross. What taking you seriously for God and taking Jesus seriously for God meant giving up his only son. So I want to ask you, do you give up a little bit of your time to read this book? Do you give up a little bit of your headspace to pray? Are you willing to cast your mind towards God in this time of isolation? Because I know that this time is tough. But I also know that Jesus endured something tougher for you. And so that's what I want you guys to hold at the center of what it is that we're doing when we're studying Mark. And that is that Jesus deserves and should be taken seriously. What we're going to do now is we're going to break down into some smaller groups. Uh, I'm pretty sure Mickey's going to facilitate that. Uh, And we're going to just kind of step through the passage. I didn't do it so much. I wanted to get the big ideas out there. We're going to step through the passage in our groups uh, and then we're going to come back and it's going to be great. Um, But yeah, so we're going to split then just before we do that, I'm going to pray. So please bow your heads and join with me and let's pray for our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your plan. 
thank you that when Adam and Eve stuffed up, you were in control. And when we all stuff up, you are still in control. Help us to take you seriously. Help us to take our sins seriously and help us to take your son seriously. Help us to read our Bibles. I know it sounds simple. It sounds easy, but we all find it so hard. We all find it so hard to give our time to you, Lord. And we wonder why our headspace is off. We wonder why we're stressed. We wonder why we're anxious. We wonder why we can't seem to clear our thoughts. And that's because our thoughts are based on this world and not on you. So Lord, help us, help us to turn our minds to you. It's the only way that will happen is if you do the work of your spirit comes upon us, the spirit given to us by your son. So Lord, please bless our time together in our small groups. Help us to have good conversations so that we can come back and rejoice as your people. In your son's name we pray. Amen.